Hello, DPS faithful. Just a quick message before we get today's episode started. When I recorded this interview with Dan Marins last week, talking about the Bernie Sanders campaign, I had no idea that I would be releasing this on the day that Bernie Sanders would officially drop out of the Democratic Party primary race for 2020. But to be honest, had I known that, I don't think I would have done anything differently. I know that most of the commentary that emerges about Bernie Sanders today will be largely hagiographic, and it should be. He's an incredible man. He has, a, he has exerted an incredible influence on not only the American political scene, but the international political scene. I have sung the praises of this man on, the, on, on these airwaves for the past three years since DPS has been around. But despite all of that praise that I've heaped on Bernie over the past few years, I'm a little nervous to release this episode today. I'm already seeing people suggesting that we ought not be criticizing Bernie today or his staff or his campaign or, or anything surrounding that movement, that that is somehow capitulating to the centrists who will be thumping their chests and celebrating this news. I respectfully disagree. I think that we're all adults here. We're adults insofar as we are absolutely capable of celebrating this man, of commemorating all that he and his campaign staff have achieved. And at the same time, we can begin to dissect, to deconstruct, and to analyze that campaign, those tactics, those strategies, those decisions, those management calls, and so on. And we can begin to think about what went wrong, what we might have done differently. And this will have incredibly important impacts on what we do moving forward as a left. Because if we don't have the proper analysis of this campaign about why it succeeded in the way that it did, about why it failed in the way that it did, if we don't have this holistic, truthful, painstakingly precise postmortem of the Bernie Sanders campaign, then we can't possibly determine for ourselves where we must go next. So you have to be able to do both of these things at the same time. And really, this level of discernment, this level of, of maturity has been at the heart of DPS since its foundation. And so I'm very proud to be releasing this episode on the day that Grandpa Bernie decided to step down from the primary race. I hope that you all will benefit from this immensely, and I hope that you will be patient with this analysis. I myself am still mulling it over. We're going to have a lot of time to think about the Bernie campaign over the next couple of weeks. There will be many more episodes coming from me to do that very thing. Uh, this movement is not yet over. We have, as I mentioned in the introduction, decisively reached an inflection point. Enjoy the episode. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are in week three, week four of the quarantine. I hope that all of you out there are holding up as well as to be expected, that you are healthy, that you and yours are safe and secure. I know that many of you are on the front lines as medical personnel, as truck drivers, as grocery store clerks, as caregivers, as any number of the professions that are so undervalued in our, in our society, but have now all of a sudden uh, become essential 
And yet people would like to pay these people with a, a hearty applause from the masses rather than, you know, a, a livable paycheck. Hopefully we can do something in order to change that. And you guys are all fucking heroes. And I just wanted to open today's show by uh, doing the thing I just uh, kind of derided, right? Which is giving you my applause, but also uh, acknowledging that we need to wage a real meaningful political and economic struggle to get you guys uh, a, a real stable, safe existence because you're the ones putting your lives on the line, not Jeff Bezos and his unspeakably large mansions in D.C. and Southern California. So today's episode is a little bit of you're going to find us in a reflective mode. You know, as you all know, the progressive and socialist left has been in the midst of a frenzied renaissance over the past several years. DPS is absolutely a product of that renaissance without question. Many of you out there listening are products of that renaissance as well. You can trace this all the way back to Jeremy Corbyn's surprise victory as leader of the British Labour Party in 2015, for sure. And of course, it, you know the, the lineages go back way beyond that towards Occupy and into the New Left movement of the 1960s and even before that. But I would say Corbyn's surprise victory really kicked this thing off in a big way. This conquest of state power was put on the agenda front and center of the left in a way that it hadn't been in the previous uh, you know, vaguely anarchist zeitgeist, as myself and some other guests have referred to it over the past three years. Of course, this was followed. Corbyn's victory was followed by Bernie Sanders' equally surprising and electrifying campaign for the Democratic Party primary race in 2016. Despite Sanders' loss to Hillary Clinton, and perhaps because of it, the left has experienced a flourishing of enthusiasm, participation, and ideas unseen for many decades. And yet, as we have seen recently in the past few months, political tides can turn quite rapidly. Although the sun has not nearly set on this latest left resurgence, it's safe to say that we're stumbling towards something of an inflection point. Even though the left in many ways is stronger, more intelligent, and more capable than ever, and there's much to be enthusiastic about in the coming years, there's no doubt that we're currently in one of those periods where it will soon start to make sense to refer to a before and after this moment. That is to say, before Bernie and Corbyn's defeats and what we have done and how we have reacted afterwards. But after all, Bernie is still in the race. And who the hell knows what will happen before the now-delayed DNC National Convention in August, given the coronavirus pandemic. But my guest today has taken this opportunity to begin to dig deeper into the Sanders campaign and reflect on its choices, its missteps, its failures, and its successes. It's my hope that this moment will kick off a prolonged period of reflection for the left that can propel it towards even more fertile terrain in years and decades to come. So we're going to try to take this large project on today. The piece is called Bernie Sanders soared back to life, but he couldn't close the deal. And its author, Daniel Marins, is a familiar voice for many of you. He's a politics reporter at HuffPost, and he's back on the program today. Dan, how are you holding up in the midst of this pandemic? I'm doing all right, Adam. It's great to be here. Talk about something other than the disease. That's right. That's right. Uh, it's, I've said this over the past couple of weeks with my guests and they've, they've concurred and my listeners have uh, sent me kind messages and they've concurred as well. It's really nice and heartening to talk about anything other than this goddamn disease. Um, even if our topic of cons under consideration is kind of a bummer, which it will be something of a bummer for many of you today. You know, Dan, you know, the listeners will know Dan and I are pretty tight and uh, I, I bring you on the show because I know you're going to give me the hard truths. And You've, you've had some pieces out lately in the past couple of weeks that I just have a visceral, re visceral reaction to, but I'm kind of twisted. And so in, in, in that, when I have a reaction to something, it makes me pay attention and I stiffen my spine a little bit. 
and I lean into it. I lean into that discomfort and I think to myself, Adam, why is this piece bothering you? It must, there must be something about it that's, that's like cutting you deeply. Right. I mean, that's, that's the, the essence of like that kind of visceral reaction. It almost like hits too close to home. It, it undermines your like sense of reality that, that you've kind of, you know, clothed yourself in in order to get through your day. Right. And many of us have been overlooking some of these weaknesses in the Bernie Sanders campaign for some months. And yet we have a lot of admiration and respect for Bernie Sanders. And we acknowledge that we wouldn't be anywhere remotely close to where we are today without that man, without his vision, without his, his legacy. How did you come around to this piece? You've been kind of like flirting with this grand conclusion for the past year on DPS or longer. It sounds like something that's been underway for a long time. Um, so let's start there. Break down how you kind of conceptualized this piece. For those of you out there who haven't read it yet, it's massive. It's huge. There's a tremendous amount of research that went into this thing for you, yourself, and your team. Um, you guys are to be seriously commended on that. You got some closed door, anonymous, you know, interviews with key senior staffers and other, you know, uh, key players in the progressive, uh, you know, organizational movement sector. Yeah, how did you kind of vision this piece? Well, I would say after. March 17th, or even, no, I should say prior to that, really the week before the last round of primary elections, my boss turned to myself and a colleague and said, we need to have whatever sort of campaign roundups, retrospectives, look, looks back, look backs ready to go as soon as he drops out. Because pretty much after March 10th, there was a sense that the momentum had ebbed and that this was was heading in a very particular direction. I don't know that we all necessarily knew exactly what form that would take and when. I think the the debate on the Sunday prior, I guess that was March 15th, the Sunday night before the last round of primaries, was a sign that Bernie wasn't really changing the dynamic at the very least. I think some people actually thought that Biden shown even brighter in that. He, he had an exceptionally good night. But there was just a, an, an imperative that was coming down from my editors in the very near term that if, if I, the person who covered Bernie most for the outlet, wanted to do something looking back on his campaign, then I would need to, I would need to really start preparing it as soon as possible. We didn't know at the time that Bernie had no no intention of dropping out anytime soon, but uh, and which frankly was something of a relief. But I would also say that once the New York Times came out with their account of of sort of the final weeks uh, prior to Super Tuesday and afterward, I I knew that there was a competition on, and I also knew that if I wanted to distinguish myself, I might have to broaden my scope and really look at start to finish. I will say, you know, Adam. You, you said I've been kicking this stuff around. I felt sort of like a Cassandra at times. We, we, we spoke uh, a couple days before, I think it was the Thursday before the Monday of the Iowa caucuses. And I said, you know, everybody should temper their expectations a little bit because the theory of change that I had heard or the theory of the case, the theory of electability, the, the theory of how he would win that I had heard from Bernie and from staffers, some of whom weren't being, who didn't have a complete picture of what was going on, was that 
his success would hinge on, on, to some degree at least, on new voters, on turning out infrequent people. And I said that there, there is just not an incredibly long and deep record of, of that being successful, particularly at a national type level. And, 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 I, and, and, I, and was, I, I like, uh, I reeled at that, right? I mean, I, I, that, 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 you know, to me, that kind of like pragmatism that, or pessimism, even pragmatic pessimism, that realism was, was like, uh, it was shocking to me at the time, even though, like I said, I mean, this is where like in hindsight, or I was leaning in to my discomfort, like, all right, I, this guy's making this, you know, this guy's a friend of mine. I, I trust his vision. I trust his knowledge. He, he's been out there on the campaign trail for a long time. And he's telling me that this this kind of um, this this heavy heavy reliance on the uninitiated, the disenfranchised, you know, the the non-voter, the young progressive non-voter, is perhaps like overvalued in our prognostications on this thing. And I I wanted I reeled at that, and I think like now is the time for us to to make a distinction that's really critical. The the first that which is to say that I think we can talk about these two topics separately. Is it, a, is it unquestionably a good idea, a solid value to attempt what Bernie and his campaign did, attempted, right? Which is to awaken, I mean, the, the, um, the disenfranchised. I mean, there's, our, our democracy is a scandal in terms of its participation, electoral participation. And that's, that's doubly true in, in the primary races. Uh, there are large swaths of the American public that are completely locked out of making the most critical decision in our, you know, political trajectory as a, as a nation. I mean, it is thoroughly undemocratic. So the values that he put forward in, in making that attempt is one thing. Those are unequivocally good. And I, pres- I, pre- I presume that you would agree with that. So let's put that off in a box for a second for the remainder of our conversation that I am wholeheartedly on, on, on the side of democracy and mass participation and continuing to, to, to try to broaden what Bernie Sanders has called this political revolution. Let's put that in a box. Let's lock it up. We're putting it in a closet for the next hour. The real conversation then needs to be focused on, did that happen? How, how did they try to make that happen? Um, were they successful? Was that going to be successful in, in, in the short term, in the context of a very like institutionally constrained process that is the Democratic Party primary race? And I think that's what you're trying to do in this piece. And a lot of like hardcore diehard Bernie heads out there will will be just as, you know, angry about the conclusions that you draw in this piece as, as I was when I first encountered it. Does that distinction sort of make sense to you? Do you sort of vibe with that? Yeah, look, I mean, no argument with me that we have one of the most feeble, civic, democratic processes in, in the small D democratic world. Uh, I, I think it, I think the idea of trying to expand on that is, is very, is essential and, and very exciting. It, it, I think the, the question is whether the, a campaign, an electoral campaign should have the same goals as a social movement. And that is a question that shines through in many, many different elements of Bernie's strategy. And in some ways, it became a, a rationalization after the fact for any number of different mistakes the campaign would make. Well, everybody's off message on social media and we don't have, 
where we are, you know, we're not contracting with a traditional ad firm to do consulting. Well, that's because we're a movement. We're not a campaign. Well, movements are, are things that, that, that take place over the long term and an electoral campaign needs to operate within the sort of constraints of, of, of short term thinking. That's why Martin Luther King didn't run for president. He pressured Lyndon Johnson, right? I mean, I know that that's not necessarily the most sophisticated metaphor, but I think, I think it's a relevant one. Um, or, or, I mean, and and I assume that, I don't know, Clement Attlee was not leading the strike, right? He was responding to the strikes, that, that sort of thing. So, and I, and I think Bernie never really resolved that for himself. I think he he really had convinced himself that that all he ever needed was authenticity. And I want to emphasize something, which is that if if there had been another sort of arbitrary confluence of multiple different events and factors, there there is just as good of a chance that these various mistakes that the campaign made in that vein, being led by a stubborn movement leader who with with all of the the strengths that that brings and all the weaknesses that that brings and having a stubborn movement mentality sort of shot through in the different rungs of the campaign, those mistakes that sprang from that, that philosophy and that influence would have, might have been that much less consequential if we were, let's say in a different economy, if we were living under a different president, I think that actually Democrats have become more risk averse under Trump. If we were living in it under a different public health scenario, there, there is now research showing that counties where coronavirus cases had already arisen during the last primary contest were more likely to shift toward Biden. Again, risk aversion, not necessarily something rational. I know that all of us who participate and listen to this podcast think understand that this this pandemic has made the need for uh, social democracy at the very least that much more obvious, but, but setting that aside and, 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 and again, um, also just maximizing potential avenues for, for victory, right? The, the question isn't always whether a certain strategy is a possible avenue for victory, but whether it max it, whether it's a plausible one and therefore whether it minimizes risks and ma- maximizes possibilities. And I think in many ways, Bernie was walking a very narrow tightrope that depended on a, a fractured field of moderate candidates. I felt like a Cassandra for so long, in part because it didn't seem to pose a problem for those first few contests, precisely because that field was fractured. And and when I warned about it on the eve of Iowa, I think it, it, it in many ways it did pan out. We, there was a slight increase in youth vote. And in, in the and young people's share of the total vote in Iowa, um, rather than overall turnout, and and of course New Hampshire turnout skyrocketed, but uh, that appeared to redound to the benefit of of moderates with with first time voters in that state going Buttigieg and Klobuchar getting uh, the highest uh, percentage of them. You know, in Iowa, we also saw that that Bernie really lost the vast majority of his rural rural white support. And that was something that his boosters uh, inside and outside of his campaign really touted as a sign of the diversification of his base. But it 
what it really reflected was the the erosion of of a key element of his 2016 coalition. So these things were were evident for those who looked. And then, of course, Nevada was such a blowout in part because of his strength with Latinos that all of that was in was in the rearview mirror. And we were again looking at a very optimistic scenario. So I'll, I'll I'll leave it there, and you can you can figure out where you want to take me from there. Yeah, I mean that's a really great overview. I think that you know you yourself, the reason why I think uh, I'd, I'd like to have you on the show is you are by far the least ideologically blinkered person that I talk to, <laughs> uh, maybe at all in general. Uh, aside from like you know friends, family, like you know normies in my life, you know guys at the gym, like whatever, right? Like I'm talking my political life, like. You are, and I'm, you know, you know, this is this is both an insult and a and a high compliment. Like you are a reporter in the truest sense of the word. Like I mean, it's it's wild to me that like someone like Neera Tandon, you know, uh, you know, came at you a couple of weeks ago for being like this, you know, ideologue on Twitter or whatever because you said some mean things about the like (laughs) like the establishment in in a way that's just like you know anyway the, the complete obvious nature of like the. The cronyism there is just like you don't you you don't you could be uh, fucking the least ideological person on the planet and see it with wide open eyes anyway. You are able to see these things maybe before some of us are is is what I'm was what I'm getting at. And um, you know you quote somebody in the piece, I believe an unnamed anonymous source, who 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 remarked that you know Sanders and his campaign had a plan to get to thirty percent, but not to fifty percent. And and I think that the the speed and the relative ease at which they got to that thirty percent leading up to Iowa, sort of um, you know left us in in the dark uh, you know with regards to their their weakness to get to that fifty percent once the other centrist candidates dropped out and inevitably threw their support behind Biden. And let's start there because that's where you start in your piece that inevitable support uh, of these centrist candidates who dropped out. And, and threw their weight behind Biden. Uh, many of us didn't see that coming. But you, as you write in the, in the beginning, at least according to some of the accounts of these anonymous sources, these senior staffers in your piece, um, and we're going to get the names of those staffers. Or I'm going to get you to just burn all your journalistic ethics in the, in the, next, uh, in the next couple of hours here. Uh, <laughs> I wonder how did they see that Biden was going to be their ultimate challenger by the end of this thing? As many of us at the time, yeah, at that time, sure. were focusing and honing in on Elizabeth Warren, but they they saw through they saw through the fog, and they knew that Biden was the main competition, and they fought tooth and nail to get Bernie to take Biden more seriously and begin drawing those distinctions, and he didn't, and and it was incredibly consequential. You point to a really key moment in uh, the debate. Was it the January debate where he hesitated when he was uh, introduced? September, September. Oh, so, so it was much so earlier. earlier. Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, okay. Let's, so let's tell that story. I'm kind of all over the place here. Just, There's so much to talk about. Sure, sure, let's, sure. Let's no, start, I know, yeah. I know. And and, it, and it's hard to, to center it thematically. I, I order the story a lot chronologically. First of all, I appreciate your praise. I, you know, I, I, I strive for that. I, 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 and at the same time, I don't want people to be confused. I am open about the fact that I want a society where we, where we guarantee healthcare, retirement, you know, safe workplaces, high wages, all that kind of stuff, a share of, of, of capital's returns. Uh, and if we can get to the Mindner plan, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly open to it. So I don't know that that probably still puts me on the more conservative edge of your listenership, but overall that that's, that's kind of my worldview and, and what I bring to this. And, and so I don't want to, 
even as I, I appreciate that, that praise, I don't want to get that confused either. Don't get it twisted. You've got, you've got some, you've got, uh, values. You're not uh, a stuffed shirt, you know, technocrat in, uh, in that, in that, in that way that we see people, uh, these days. Um, how did this, how did this start? And uh, up to about a year ago, his senior staffers were honing in on Biden in a way that many others weren't. Right. So, so I think that they, and, and, and mind you, I do think that they saw a problem with Warren with, with young and very liberal voters. And that, that was a problem that they were able to take care of really in one fell swoop with the, the Ocasio-Cortez endorsement and then sort of the Warren self-inflicted wound on Medicare for all. So, and, you know, and maybe Pete Buttigieg helped do him a solid in that regard. So I don't want to totally minimize that. And as it turns out, I think some of the Biden voters or the Biden preference voters were a little bit less movable than than they ended up thinking. You know, I think a lot of polling can be misleading. What does a second choice really mean? You know, what happens when you get to the the, vo- the voting booth and, and all of that? But certainly in their minds, this was a guy with a strong brand who really only rivaled Bernie in terms of name ID. And I think that's a huge factor in all of this, right? These were the two people who came in the biggest contenders, who who had these large followings, and who and who critically had had large followings within the fifty-five to sixty percent of the Democratic Party who don't have a college degree. And you know, those are primarily black and Latino at this point, but but also uh, Asian and white, and 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 probably also a, a segment of of the college-educated folks who are not super political, who just sort of associate people based on uh, who, who identify based on name recognition. But again, it, it's very much the beer track candidates versus the wine track candidates. And so they looked at it through a class lens rather than an ideological lens and saw that these were the two candidates who resonated with this working class base. My understanding is from speaking with, with, with people that were crafting this strategy and thinking about this inside of Bernie's campaign, that the real battleground was middle-aged voters they knew that older voters were going to be harder to get in this working class sector uh, because of their devotion to Biden and their aversion to change, and that younger voters were going to be harder to lose. So that was sort of the battleground. Uh, the push, Bernie apparently recognized this throughout, actually, but the pattern that I highlighted in my piece was that he really had a very particular way that he wanted to do things. He really thought that running as idealistically as possible, as much on the issues as possible, was critically important. And so the pressure campaigns to nudge him toward contrasting with Biden earlier and more consistently really just never quite worked. He would really get cold feet. And so I described this scenario that I think also shed some light on a dysfunctional senior management structure inside the campaign, which is that Ben Tolchin, uh, Bernie's pollster, and David Sirota, his speechwriter, and obviously a very public sort of flamethrower, were feeling as though that their appeals to Bernie to contrast more with Biden and and, and get tougher with him were, were falling on deaf ears. They draft a memo in which they include Nina Turner, who had also sort of very much been firmly in their camp, former Ohio State senator and co-chair of the campaign. And they even get sort of Bernie's former campaign manager and decades-long right-hand man Jeff Weaver on the memo. And this is after Bernie had held a rally in Denver 
It was a few days before a debate set to occur in Houston, and they had decided to hole up in Boulder for a few days to prepare for the debate. Sirota and Tolchin effectively followed them over to, to Boulder. Tolchin's based in San Francisco, so he was really making a pilgrimage in order to make a point. They, they barge in, demand an audience with Bernie. Bernie sort of humors them and hears them out. They have a whole plan. It includes, and I didn't even mention this in the piece, an early effort to contrast with Biden on Social Security, which did not end up happening until late January, mind you, and really take it to Biden, not just in the debate, but in the opening statement of the debate, at, at sort of the, the moment when perhaps most people will be watching and there will be the least interruption. Bernie sort of nods. There's a call, a follow-up call made to ask Sirota and Tolchin to sort of draft some language for him for that moment. And there's a different version of the story, which, you know, is proffered by the people who were actually in the debate prep room with Bernie to say to him that actually his aversion to taking Tolchin and Sirota's advice actually made him more reluctant to follow through after they spoke and that that, that this effort had already been underway. It's a little bit Rashomon-esque in terms of whose perspective you, you trust more on that. But either way, they, nobody could prevail on him. He's a notoriously stubborn guy, or he left them with the impression that he was going to follow through, and he sort of blinked when the moment came. You could debate whether this is apocryphal or, or whether it's, it's, in fact, what actually occurred. But if you look at the opening moment of the debate, there's an applause line for Harris. The applause persists a little bit. And then George Stephanopoulos turns to Bernie and, and says, Senator Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders. And he kind of pauses staring into the air. And then he needs another prompt before launching into his opening statement. And he sticks with his guns and goes with the denunciation of, of the ol oligarchy. And Biden doesn't get mentioned until, until much, much further into the debate. So I, I, I looked at that kind of as an anecdote, not just into his reluctance to contrast with Biden. And that was very, very real. And it in fact dates to even earlier when in the first June debate, shortly after Biden had told a fundraiser, nothing will fundamentally change. He had a line prepared for him by his aides uh, to go after Biden on that in the opening statement of that debate. When he did end up going after Biden on social security in January, he limited the attack to social media videos and did not go on the air against him until the day after Super Tuesday, when it was too late. And so I, but I, but I, I, I tell that story not just to talk about the contrast with Biden, which frankly I think fit much more comfortably into a convenient left-wing narrative of, oh, he just didn't go hard enough. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to push, I was going to push you on that as well. Right, yeah. right. And I think, I think that the answer is when he did go hard, it was intermittent. It was uh, undisciplined. There were figures in his campaign who were doing their own thing sporadically, and whether that was a reflection of bad hiring or bad management, I think is 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 up to a matter of debate. But it that it reflected a a, a sort of authenticity and stubbornness, and frankly, some degree of disdain for the traditional campaign tools and the deference of at, at least some candidates, though I know it's a struggle, my sense is it is a struggle for all campaigns to control their candidates, the, but, but the greater deference that at least some successful politicians have had for politics as a kind of tradecraft, as something that can't just be whatever pops into your head, 
but that needs to use polling to at least decide what to emphasize, how to market and package things, that needs to use paid media to get that message across, that needs to have a strategy for leveraging uh, field and, 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 and appropriating the right resources at the right times, that needs to be able to delegate to key managers so that decisions can be made quickly and pivots can be made quickly, all of which he sort of ultimately lacked. Now, as I said, there, there could be an alternate universe where none of that would have mattered or made the crucial difference. But as one of his allies said, and I said this on, on Crystal Ball's show, but I, I didn't say it on, you know, in the piece, one of his, his supporters told me, or, uh, you know, on background, it wasn't that they were running with ankle weights. It was that they were running with cement blocks. And when you're running as a left-wing candidate and really the most left-wing candidate that the United States would have when you think about the foreign policy elements, the ways in which, you know, debates about immigration and other issues have, have progressed since the FDR, LBJ, post-war consensus era, this would probably be the most left-wing nominee of a major political party since, I mean, I don't, I don't, you could argue about relative to an era, but but in absolute terms, ever in the United yeah, States history. Yeah. And, and in that context, you, you're always going to have to be twice as good. You're always going to have to be twice as good at reassuring people in a middle-class country that, you know, giving them permission to feel okay about voting for you. That doesn't need to be fair or rational. It doesn't need to be okay that people would rather vote for sort of a, a corrupt, racist, ignoramus like Trump over over someone so clearly committed to improving Americans' well-being. It doesn't need to be okay that it's hypocritical of the vote blue no matter who crowd. But I think the the element of respectability politics of 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 not just being effective in in the act of the day-to-day campaign, but being effective so as to reinforce a meta-narrative about progressive competence about progressive electability and about personal comfort with the idea of someone whose ideology, frankly, the majority of Democrats aren't necessarily going to agree with, let alone uh, the, the majority of the, the current voting public in the country. And, and I might even extend that to the, the whole American public, because I, I do think that the untapped, the, the whole idea of this untapped progressive voter is a little bit overstated even though ideology we know is a very fluid thing that, that, that is the, the product of, of numerous factors at any given point in time. Uh, so, so all of those things, I think, conspired. And you sort of, I go through it. I go through the fact that this was a guy who had experienced DC campaign consultants in his first run, a first run that admittedly was far less professionalized than this one in many ways. But that he happened to accept the advice of these sort of old Washington hands, Tad Devine and Mark Longabaugh, who made his most famous ads through that campaign. And he turned to the second run and, and by many accounts, you know, he read Jeff Weaver's book. He had some understanding of what had occurred. And he basically was thinking, I got this this time. I don't, I don't want these old naysayers in my ear. I don't want, I don't, I, I want to run sort of this unvarnished, authentic, inexperienced, movement-driven campaign this time. And he basically, Divine, he had already had a falling out with, but Longabaugh, he kind of 
the real backstory there on I call it strategic differences, but the real Long backstory was is his, that uh, sort of communications, uh, you know, di- consultant. His, his main cons- main consultant, only consultant, produced really. a lot of his the only most real... viral and popular campaign commercials and ads from right. uh, 2016. The, the, the America ad. Yeah. I mean, he was the guy who would produce the films, uh, place the ad buys, and and frankly, just sort of give advice on messaging, which is a key part of what ads are about. And you work in tandem with a pollster to do that. Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I remind you that this installment of DPS, like all others, is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. So if you have learned anything from DPS over the years, if you would like to see this content continue on a regular basis in the midst of this economic, political health and otherwise crisis that we are facing today, I encourage you to head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a patron of DPS Media today. We have a lot of really exciting things coming your way. We're going to be continuing the anti-essentialism series that was momentarily put on pause due to both the electoral concerns and the now coronavirus concerns. We're going to be picking that up in earnest in the next couple of weeks. We've got some distinguished guests that you guys are going to be really excited to hear from. We're also going to be continuing our analysis of the political and economic crisis that we are facing today. We're going to be picking up on some of the themes that you've known and loved over the years of DPS. If you want to see that continue, we're really going to need your support to do that. I brought on a producer who will be working with us in order to lighten the editing and production load, take some of that load off of my shoulders, which will hopefully enable me to bring you more content on a regular basis. We're going to be picking up the b-sides once again for patrons so if you'd like to get those b-sides on a weekly basis if you want to get the deep cuts the behind the scenes uh unfiltered dps takes on a weekly basis head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today all right back to this interview with dan marins it's a challenging one i hope that you guys are taking it in you're being patient i hope you will you will have read the article uh, by the time you got to this interview or perhaps after the interview, you'll read the article and and take some time to digest it. Uh, as I record this little funding pitch, it's been several days since I recorded the interview and I'm still mulling it over. I'm still chewing on it. I'm not sure how I feel about some of this, but it's a really important, critical and, and reflective work that we're going to need to do in the coming months and years uh, in order to set this project on its right, proper footing we got a lot of work to do, folks. Uh, enjoy, my, enjoy the rest of my interview with, uh, with Dan Marins. I know you will. It, it sounds uh, to me that you're, you paint a picture of a Bernie Sanders as brilliant and as amazing as he is, uh, who, who really doesn't like to get outside opinions on messaging. That he has been so on message with his own messaging for the past 35 years that he he just has this uh this this kind of uh, disdain you know for outsiders who who try to get him to massage or um you know otherwise tweak his message for various ends he very notoriously right in your piece tried to cut uh campaign funds for uh polling internal polling in which it is right. reported that Jeff Weaver his longtime companion and uh, 2016 you know, campaign uh, chief there who's taken a more subordinate role, but is still a senior staffer. Uh, Weaver threatened to quit if Sanders wouldn't agree to allocate money f- for internal polling. That's how right. that's how serious they, they thought that was. And 
Um, and so in a way, like you really do write a, a, a kind of tragic case here. I mean, you could say that Bernie Sanders, you know, in 2016 was just a guy, uh, just a queer in uh, southern Oklahoma who had a zoo and, and liked to raise uh, little baby tigers. <laughs> uh, and, and he wanted to save the tigers. But uh, you could say that the power and the success and the momentum got to his head. And next thing you know, he's in jail uh, for murder for hire. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty yeah, much no, exactly glad, like I'm, that. If you think about it, um, I'm glad you brought up Joe exotic because <laughs> I find that, that, that Jeff Weaver is a lot like Jeff Lowe in this. No, no, I'm just Jeff, no, I think uh, um, you're, on, you're on some, you're on some, no, but I mean, but, but no, no. obviously that's absurd. I mean, you know, he's not, he's no Joe exotic. He doesn't have, um, he's not megalomaniacal, but, but look, like there's just no question that this man is who he is. And I mean, one of the, one of the quotes, the kind of poll quotes, uh, you're, you're, uh, editors or, or somebody came out with here, but it's just as important here. And I'm glad it was emphasized. I love this line just in general. You guys, if you're, if you're doing some internal digging and you're, and you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're trying to do some personal reflection, this one is about as good as it gets. But this is also obviously it's as true for Bernie Sanders as, as it is for anybody else, which is the, this pro Sanders progressive strategist you interview says off record, of course, or on the record, but anonymously that Bernie's greatest strength is his greatest weakness which is that his independence and stubbornness mean he is not agile enough to respond to shifting moods. And that's true for all of us, man. If you, if you really dig and you do some, some, you know, Deepak Chopra level, uh, <laughs> self-reflection, you'll find that like the source of your greatest strength is oftentimes like the source of your greatest weakness. Like this is the structure of Greek tragedy, you know? And so this isn't like i I'm not, this isn't a vilification of the man. This is just an acknowledgement of like one of the general laws of human psychology. If if you could say such a thing, apologies to the real psychologists out there. Uh, but do you think that, I mean, that seems to be the story that you're trying to, to tell here. Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of the story. And again, I, I didn't go into sort of the pathos that I, I don't know if that's the right word. I, I didn't go, I didn't go into the sympathy that I have for, for just where that comes from, right? Being this lone independent gadfly in Congress for 30 years for standing against the grain and and really, whether or not having friends as a matter of personality, I think that that's probably also a little bit true, right? He's not a, a gladhander, but but also not having friends as a matter of principle because you're just driven day after day by a fire in your belly. And and if anybody who covers DC knows that as much as the money moves things, the friendships grease the wheels too, and people end up compromising for fear of confrontation. They end up doing things because people they get calls from people that they care about who are, represent some of these special interests. And he was immune to all of that, all of that. But it also meant that he really thought that, I mean, A, he couldn't break out of his own disposition in that regard, which had served him to that point. But B, I think he really believed that that disposition was also the secret to his political success. And I think it was to a large degree. The question is whether could it have been 90% true and not 100% true? Could it have been that he could have been his authentic self, but also given a little bit of small concessions to kind of the tradecraft of campaigns? And in cases where he did, such as accept, by the way, I, I was, it, you said it is reported. I reported on the first to break that, that Weaver threatened to quit if Bernie wouldn't continue to fund polling. And that was a case where people prevailed on him and it helped inform the types of ads that they cut. And, and it was an important part of the campaign. And then there are other cases like 
this consultant, Mark Longabaugh, wanted him to, to do more outreach to union heads and African-American institutional leaders and even give his first speech, you know, ex- a, a, one of his first two speeches exclusively on the issue of race, wanted him also to affiliate as a Democrat, which, you know, has its general election perils. I think that his independence is a general election boon, but might have helped in the Democratic primary or signaled a different shift. And, 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 and he was jettisoned in favor of, of these less experienced aides who come from a, a more Capitol Hill background of serving the principal. And th- that was Faz Shakir and R. Rabenhoff. And those two ended up following him wherever he went on the campaign trail because that was their way of, of sort of getting quick decisions from yeah. him. I mean, you, you, you painted a very, uh, in some ways, I got to be honest, a non-flattering picture of the kind of uh, psyche or the the sort of business the 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 you know the the business as usual kind of uh, patterning the social daily day to day habits of this man that he is somebody who came up with an extremely tight inner circle and if you want to influence this guy if you want to reach him at all you better be in the room with him every day and and, and it sounds to me Absolutely. like his most senior staff and of course Fez and some of these others uh, were were doing things were were making decisions that were that are completely outside the norm of what a campaign manager is is to do you cite many people in that world who who were astonished that that he was on that Shakir and others were on the champagne, campaign trail rather than in in the DC office like coordinating the day-to-day activities of of this national staff and and that produced a lot of confusion that not only was there a leader that is Bernie Sanders who who was somewhat unreachable and and unflappable and un Un, um, you know, un, unmovable. Um, that's just a synonym of unflappable. He's he's very unflappable, <laughs> Marins. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but that's that's the key there. And and then and of course, then knowing that, right, his senior level staff who who are in charge of coordinating this campaign have to be like sort of in his face day to day in order to to move him in any direction, right? Such that you, I mean, I could imagine as you know as. I don't have a lot of nice things to say about, you know, Mayo Pete, but I imagine his uh, campaign coordinator could text him from the D.C. office. And best best run campaign yeah, all cycle. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he just text and, him and, from and, the campaign office and, and, and he he would be adequately influenced and, and he would take it into consideration. But not only is Bernie, I, I seriously doubt Bernie's a, a real text guy given the generation he's, he's in. Uh, but he doesn't even seem to be someone who can be easily reached and, and motivated, you know, by by phone. And this is important stuff. I mean, we've had these, you know, but for those of you who are like, you know, clutching your pearls and, and unsubscribing from the Patreon or whatever, because we're, we're bashing our boy Bernie here. Like we've already had these conversations about Jeremy Corbyn, you know, um, it, it's, it's a little, it's, they're a little less, um, you know, they seem a little bit less, uh, you know, <laughs> um, it's a little bit less of an indictment to suggest that Bernie, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is just too nice. He's just too cheerful. He just likes gardening too much, you know? Uh, it doesn't seem like as much of an insult and, and maybe, you know, people's backs aren't up as high as, as they are, but there's no question that people in hindsight felt that, you know, Corbin had some personal defects that were generated over the course of many decades of fighting as an outsider that motivated and influenced the direction of his leadership at the head of the British Labor Party. And, and we're, you know, we need to do the same thing here. I think both reflect, you know, they, they occupy, they had very similar career trajectories you know, Corbyn's was manifest in, yeah, a slightly, I don't know, I guess you could say a more cheerful disposition, ironically, but, but both, both had this kind of underlying uh, stubbornness. And, and I guess, and, and, and it's incredibly challenging and incredibly unfair to be running against the grain. 
as a leftist in this sort of neoliberal paradigm world that we're living in. But I think it's a question that leftists also just need to ask themselves culturally and personally, are we putting ourselves in the uncomfortable place of figuring out how to reach people who are just not on our page, you know, and Bernie famously had, had, had difficulty, you know, making the phone calls to his colleagues. That was another thing I talk about. I I just updated the story last night to, or I I haven't updated it in print yet, but I I know it on Twitter. Somebody flagged for me, you know, you should ask JD Shulton, the guy, you know, sort of a prairie populist, former minor league baseball player running against Steve King in Iowa who Bernie barmstormed the shit out of the state for him, uh, whether Bernie ever asked him for an endorsement. And the answer is no. And, and not only that, they didn't even invite him for, you know, to, to be sort of an honored guest at a campaign rally in his home city of Sioux City. These were courtesies that, that wow. Joe Biden, who had the most slipshod campaign in the state of Iowa, extended to, to figures like Shulton, who, who sort of became kind of a, a folk hero for bringing Steve King within three points in a deeply Republican district, a guy who really casts himself in the sort of Paul Wellstone, Tom Harkin, prairie populist tradition. And uh, th- these were courtesies that he could not extend. And, and, and again, I, I think it comes down to, you know, Bernie, <laughs> he can only be Bernie. And he doesn't even, he isn't even terribly interested in, I think, I don't know, structuring a message to reach people who are not already on board or making them feel just personally welcome in a way I can. And, and, and that's the same one for reporters that dealt with the campaign up to a point. I think that it, it, it improved over time and also, frankly, people seeking jobs on the campaign, the you know, again, I think the left often retreats into a subculture. And I wasn't sure that it mattered the entire time that I would go to these Bernie rallies and they seemed a whole lot like, you know, lefty college kids and then a smattering of older hippies. But it was certainly riskier. And being able to have kind of this normie appeal that maybe if you go campaign in South Carolina, you don't have Cornell West speak, you have like a local preacher speak, or you have uh, a local lawmaker speak. That maybe if you go on TV and you're the front runner, you don't rail against the establishment, you find a way to pivot to, to welcome more people in, or you liken yourself to be in the tradition of FDR, and you cast yourself as part of the Democratic Party tradition. Those were all things that were recommended to him that he never quite uh, took people up on. And just one last note on that. You're absolutely right about the way campaign communication normally works. Campaigns are almost like startup businesses or or nonprofits that scale up in a matter of months to over a thousand people. And so the idea generally is that there need to be multiple moving parts operating independently, autonomously, and rapidly without authorization from the candidate. So it's not just the sign off of a text message for a particular ad or a particular tweet. It's that you want to be kind of iterating, whether it's in the form of oppo research or rapid response or story pitches. I never got a single pitch from the Bernie campaign. They got better at rolling out policies, but my sense was it it all emanated from him to service him. And that was, that was an important point or, or, or element about the way that this was functioning. So 
I mean, there, there's there's so much there. One of the things that that struck me because you know I, I founded this podcast with the the aim of of making the left less less marginal, um, less focused on marginality, and thus less marginal, and and you know acknowledging and accepting the kind of mainstream appeal. And, and, and in many ways, you know, Bernie Sanders did do that. He pulled the left out of marginality. But there's there's a sense in which you get after reading your your piece that. He wasn't able to escape that mindset thoroughly enough. And I think that's something that's a lesson we need to take from this to move forward in a more productive way. And and you you cite somebody in your piece. I don't have it in front of me right now, but it, it really stuck with me. He said something to the effect of, you know, when you get in front of the American people and you say and you rail against the establishment and you talk about yourself as, you know, as this uh, marginalized character. You know, the, you know, the establishment is railing against us and I'm marginal and I'm marginal and marginal. You know, one of the seemingly irrational but also kind of rational on that basis responses of the masses to that kind of framework is, well, this guy's marginal. He can't possibly be electable. He can't possibly lead lead us uh, lead this country. So making that pivot from like the anti-establishment, you know, uh, the anti-establishment posturing the, which is very, you know, kind of this populist gesture, making that case that there's no question that there is, you know, a political establishment that stands against you, a media establishment that stands against you, but then pivoting in, in a way that, God damn it, damn it, uh, Marin, you're going to make me say this, in, in a way somewhat similar to, the, to, to Trump, right? The way that Trump was able to pull off that double gesture, where on the one hand, and I don't think he did this on purpose. I think it was a total fucking accident of circumstance. <laughs> and we could take an entire episode series to get through that. But somehow he was able to position himself as both marginal and an outsider. And yet at the same time, capable of doing fucking something. I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze him or his his supporters in that way. But but does that make sense? Yeah, it seems yeah. to be really at the heart uh, of the story I, I, you're trying so to tell. Let's talk about the Trump parallel. Because I think that's an important thing, and that was another one of the narratives that I think that the left told themselves, that because Trump was just his authentic self and totally all over the place and had no message discipline, but just spoke to this kind of like electoral id that had been untapped, that Sanders could replicate that against Trump four years later and be met with you know, the same success or, or lack of, frankly, obstacles. I think it confuses two different things, which is that 2016, I think, was a unique moment because it was kind of this revolution of rising expectations. Things weren't really bad. They were on their way up, but they hadn't been good enough. And those are usually the moments in history when people are willing to countenance something better and more ambitious and even more unconventional. But and, and aren't too desperate, are, are both not too desperate to deny themselves the opportunity of something more ambitious and more unconventional because they're, they're in a basically comfortable place, but are still yearning for something because things aren't that great. And that's kind of that perfect happy medium moment. After Trump's election, Democrats in the country in particular, and to some degree, independents and former Republicans in, in suburban areas go into freak out lockdown mode. They're very disturbed about Trump's effect on the country's institutions, and frankly, sometimes just the optics of the presidency. I think we all know about this, the, you know, the MSNBC moms and dads out there, and they're much less experimental. 
And on top of that, the economy improves dramatically. And even as even though there are not perfect structures to share those gains, uh, not perfect, there, there are barely any structures to share those gains, but a tighter labor market has an impact. It has an impact on extractive industries, on construction, and even on service industries. Uh, people believe that one of the reasons Amazon capitulated to Bernie as quickly as they did on the $15 minimum wage for its warehouse workers is, well, they were probably heading in that direction in terms of competing for labor at that point anyway. So that's a very different environment. The second problem with the Trump parallel is that the Republican side is a very different beast. It's, it's a much more movement-driven party rather than a top-down party of old, of the old sort of leadership-driven machine system the way the Dems yeah, are. It's very paradoxical, isn't it? It, it makes the it makes Republican Party more structurally and institutionally like ripe for a populist-style candidate like, like Trump. That's right. That's right. Because you have, for example, you have billionaires on the right, on the, the right side of the spectrum who will fund primary challengers against incumbents. The liberal billionaires on the, and multimillionaires on the Democratic side, Soros has started doing that with district attorneys, right, with prosecutors. And we can tell that that's like, okay, well, that's still kind of a social issue, sort of, that, you know, capital would be comfortable with, right? So you have capital support for some of these right-wing grassroots movements that people sometimes call it hothouse activism. It's still grassroots. It's not really astroturf all the time. Some of the time it is, but it has this hothouse because it has these donor backers who, who see these people as useful or in alignment with their interests. And there's no parallel on the Dem side. And there's just not the same trajectory of Goldwater, Reagan, you know, and, and, and that march through the institutions that the right has taken since the 50s and 60s. So actually, I don't really think Trump mainstreamed himself very consistently. Yeah, yeah. But no, this is but, important. I mean, I broke off that. I broke off that comparison like halfway because in order to try to make sort of like in order uh, to try to make that comparison, that? you'd have yeah. to have so many qualifications in there. You know, the to the like the institutional historical dynamic, the fundraising dynamic, the populist. You know, the the, the fact that it's right for populism in a way that democratic. I don't. I don't think that any mainstream like GOP funding operation has blacklisted any individual or organization for funding like an insurgent primary campaign. I mean, not that I know. Of. Well, they, they, they do their best. Uh, uh, I mean, like, for example, like Mitch McConnell is really sort of the nexus yeah, for that. Yeah. And but, the, but there's always I, another I billionaire who's, similar, ready, who's ready and willing to step into that's, that's fundraising right. vacuum. That's right. It's, right. It's, it's a figure like McConnell and his backers, which are usually like corporate and and people like like sort of eccentric right wing billionaires like like the Koch brothers, but also like Dick Uline who runs like the Uline packaging, you know, you ever buy like a corrugated cardboard that says yeah. U-L-I-N-E? Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, like that guy. Oh, um, that guy, all right. Got uh, it. <laughs> like Jim Ricketts in Nebraska who founded like E-Trade, you know, like random stuff like that. Uh, I mean, random like financiers and industrialists. I mean, the vast majority of these people aren't political hobbyists, but it just takes like seven, yeah. right? You know, yeah, um, yeah. the... Uh, the other element of it that I think is really instructive about the Trump parallel, and this is something that my friend Zed Jelani points out a lot, uh, is that, and I think he was on his show once. Yeah, yeah. I've had um, The okay, Trump never tempered himself in any in any in any way. He would he would he would do it one one day and then undo it the next day. Right? Fine. 
but he also didn't and and david uh david leonhard the columnist for the times points this out he didn't telegraph to voters as an arch right winger he is a harder line person on immigration than i don't know just about anyone we've had since I don't know when, since before the liberalization in 1965. That's my opinion. Some people dispute that because of Obama's deportation figures, and you could get into the fine. But but he certainly struck a a much much different tone on immigration than mainstream politicians have in decades, and and frankly a much more racist tone. I mean, we all know this, right? But on other issues, he seemed heterodox to voters. He, he has never had a problem with gay rights. He was the first person on the Republican convention floor to say LGBT rights, you know, <laughs> and he promised to protect Social Security and Medicare. He took a populist uh, sort of nationalist attitude on trade that has been in line with organized labor's thinking. And he critiqued the campaign finance system. So he, he was even a like a reversing the Democrats, you know, way of, of talking about this. He was he was for abortion until he wasn't. Right. Like, like, right, like right, so, right. I mean, he's, he's even the John, the John Kerry of abortion. Yeah. Rights. He even yeah. has like a, a like a heterodox. He, he, he would talk about it very differently depending on, you know, who who he was, who, who his audience was. Right. Well, he would overdo it sometimes, too. Right. Like like he in, in his effort to like don the pro-life garb, he, he would say things like, I mean, they've got to be punished. And like, I think I think Chris Matthews asked him, like, do you think, you think they yeah. should women should yeah. this should be locked up? He's like. I mean, yeah, how else do you do it, right? <laughs> it's illegal. And people and the, the pro-life people are like, we don't yeah, see that. Mar- even like March for Lifers are like, cut, cut, cut the camera, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And he like appears at Liberty University and he's like two Corinthians, right? Or like, you know, or second Corinthians. I, for whatever one was wrong, he clearly doesn't read the Bible. So, you know, it was sort of awkward. And that was like, and so can you think of any ways in which Bernie projects a similar heterodoxy other than his independent label. And this is where you can sort of get in. This was a more nebulous thing. And so I didn't get into it as much, but like I sort of allude to it that there was this mentality in, in Bernie land and with Bernie that there was no policy that was too left wing to embrace because it was all just part of his authentic appeal. And I think that misreads some of the way the public interpreted Bernie. I didn't mention it in the piece, but uh, it, or it was on the cutting room floor, but you know, there was a moment in a CNN debate where he sort of said, yeah, I want all prisoners to vote. Okay, you and I agree, great policy, right? On the policy merits, it's fantastic. But there was clearly no accompanying sort of defense strategy. Would this be left to the states? That's an easy way out of that. This is not a popular policy, right? And this is not something that, you know, it, it exists in Maine and Vermont. Were there testimonials ready to be rolled out? Was there, was there a strategy? No, he just seemed to say it. The campaign started doing triage and then they doubled down with an op-ed in USA Today. And it's like, that's very different than the sort of core economic populist message. I would frankly even say that kind of getting into the details of Medicare for all as opposed to just the phrase or the overall idea like, I'm fighting for you against big pharma and this is a proxy for that, right? When I talked to like these normie working class voters who liked Bernie, they were just kind of like, yeah, he's fighting for me. He's fighting for me against the big guys. It wasn't checking boxes to make sure that he was to the umpteenth degree orthodox on every last 
left-wing checklist. Yeah, I call it like the, the, the litany of horrors approach, right? You know, you just sort of like talk about all the isms and the injustices and you just sort of list them off and it just, it gets lazy. It feels lazy. I have to be honest, you know, I mean, I, I, I was very candid on a B side. Patrons will, will, have, will have heard this very candid at, at, at times over the past month or two about that, right? Like this kind of litany, litany of horrors approach that it's just, it's completely insufficient. Yeah. The left loves it. Like we eat that shit up, right? We're just drooling and clapping and crying at the same time, you know, when we, when we see stuff like that, but it just eventually it, uh, you know, I, you know, the, the labor party under Corbin had a lot of problems with this, their inability or unwillingness to prioritize and then make the case for, you know, s- certain components in their in their platform, right? And the question came up, you know, it's a really important like comparative study, right? The question came up, what is the role of the Labor Party manifesto? Is it a checklist of all the things that we want to see in society for the next 100 years or is it an actionable, you know, strategy based on the the where the society is at in that particular moment with, you know, uh various, you know, tactical like rollouts of policies and and, you know, media and PR campaigns and things like that to go along with it. And, you know, one of the things that, that comes, you know, I've had a lot of people on who've, who've talked very sincerely and authentically about their experience campaigning. I've, I've done phone work and some tech stuff. I did very limited, very limited door to door knocking, unfortunately, due to time and other professional constraints. But, you know, and they say, oh, but when you talk to people about Bernie, you really break it down for them like they get it and it resonates. And that's awesome. And that's true. There's no question. The people who are out there who are who are calling and knocking on doors are fucking heroes. And we need to do more of that. Canvassing is so important in building consciousness and making people capable to talk to normies and to broaden the appeal of socialism and get outside of these hug boxes that we find ourselves trapped in. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself, right? This like this dialectical thinking that I like to push on this show, right? This both and is that, yes, it is great that when we talk to people and explain Bernie Sanders' uh, approach to normies, that they typically like it. But then you have to ask yourself a question. Why, why do we have to do that? Why did his campaign in 2020 require hundreds of thousands of little minions going around you know, from house to house, from cell phone to cell phone, translating the message of the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and making it you know, uh, like – comprehensible or viable or, or, uh, you know, impactful to people's day-to-day lives. Why wasn't that messaging coming from the campaign itself? What were the barriers that were in place to making that happen? And we really, really need to have some serious, like honest soul searching going forward to think about how we might do this better. And, um, yeah, I don't know your piece. Can I, can I, can I, please do, please do. I I don't know if I totally agree with the characterization, but I want to, I want to explain what I mean. I guess it's it's more of like a, it's a thought experiment. I I don't know that I agree with everything that I just said there either, but like, these are questions that we need to ask. I don't know if there, if there's a negative or an affirmative, but yeah, go on. I, I think that you seem to be alluding to the fact that the campaign didn't do an adequate job on its messaging or that, that there were, things that needed to be undone at the canvassing level. And that there, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's it's a a question. You're you're asking, you're asking. And, and I, that is possible. And I, and I can get into that in in a moment, but I think the the bigger thing in terms is, is that what I would hear from leftists over and over again is that an individual conversation suggested that, an endlessly ambitious campaign platform and national message 
would was not an electoral liability because of the ability to convince people one on one. I see. And I campaigns see. aren't won or lost one on one. The most ambitious, the most dedicated evangelists for field programs, whether in the form of volunteer canvassing or paid canvassing, persuasion or turnout, believe that it it can make a two or three point difference in an electoral margin. Okay, so that's that's just an important thing to understand. National earned media, paid media, rallies, literature, all that stuff does the rest of that work. And so that that's just it. I think the problem with it wasn't the volunteering itself. It was a sense oh, and that I, 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 just to be clear, I did not mean to suggest that either. I, I'm very much in tune with what you're putting oh, forward. Right, I think no, you're articulating no, what I was trying to get at a lot right. more clearly here. That what problem is certainly not with the volunteers. It's certainly not with the canvassing. That 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 is. I mean, that's the political revolution, right? And that is so incredibly important, building the left and broadening our capacities, like moving forward. But like perhaps like the over reliance on that, and then, and that's really gets to the piece that you're talking about here. This this notion of being the organizer in chief has a uh, has is is a contradictory notion in itself. It's like it's it's just loaded with contradictory impulses and imperatives, and like and you're getting at and you're getting at that right now. And in terms of running your campaign as an as a as a social movement as an organizational effort organizing effort versus what you're spelling out, which is, you know, how you actually win campaigns. It's something that the left needs to think a lot about. So yeah, go ahead and finish that thought. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think to speak about Bernie as the organizer in chief, it's worth noting that even his campaign at the field level was doing persuasion work. You remember they got Warren, people got mad at them because they had a script for talking to people who were Warren leaders. Right. But Bernie was just constantly actually raising expectations for his ability to win on the basis of much, much higher turnout. Those things aren't mutually exclusive, but in terms of the emphasis, that's what Bernie was putting out there. That's what I think a lot of uh, other staff inside his organization thought was a big part of the strategy. And it was the all-purpose retort to any questions that people might have about whether policy stances or particular messaging flubs like the prisoner voting rights thing like the no middle ground thing or the democratic socialism speech thing, or as I talk about the Fidel Castro incident, which frankly had some Corbin, Jeremy Corbyn-esque reverberation, like sort of style to it because it got into the the most challenging element of what, what Bernie's platform would be, which is challenging sort of the, 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 the U.S. hegemony narrative, right? Uh, and, and ways in which we think about black and white dictators, uh, sort of di- dictators and governments in, in sort of a black and white lens. And so I would constantly have these individual conversations and even in, in some cases official conversations where the retort would be is, oh, oh, you're looking at this through a conventional lens. We're looking at this through, you know, the galaxy brain expanded <laughs> electorate lens. And you just don't quite understand that. And I know this because I knocked the door. You yeah, know, dude, and, and I, hey, that, that kind of stings a little because I'm pretty sure you and I had that conversation at one point. Uh, <laughs> well, we yeah. started to get hip to it because you spoke to what was it, your aunt who's a school teacher, and she said they're just not down with that word, that word revolution. Can't he just say it a little different? Yeah. Mind you, yeah. there are people, and again, this is another thing over interpreting the maximalism of Republicans. Republicans are more maximalist than Democrats, they play to win, they're part of this, their party is more ideologically driven frankly, even more movement driven in some ways, right? 
but they still do weaselly things to conceal the most unpopular parts of their agenda. What I think of is Susan Collins, when they were confirming Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, she said, oh, don't worry, you know, he told me he'll uphold Roe, you know? Like, like, like... If if she were really as maximalist as every left winger thinks that every Republican is, and as unabashedly ideological, and they just they just don't give a fuck, and they just they just always throw it down, she would say, "Fuck you all!" Like, I, yeah, I'm kind of pro-choice, but I don't give a shit because he's gonna like do all yeah. kinds of other stuff. Mask like, off! Yeah, I, I want big corporate tax breaks. You know, like right, exactly. You know, and 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 I'm you know I, I still got an R after my name, motherfuckers. Right, like you know, no, she said, "Oh, don't worry." Uh, my my professed priority of abortion rights is taken care of here, and all that does is just it sows a little bit of doubt into the bloodstream. You know, there's a governor of Illinois right now who's done an okay job, you know, executing on liberal priorities while running as like the most moderate option in his Democratic primary. He also happens to be like a, a the billionaire heir of the Hyatt hotel chain, right? Like. People do things to get elected. And again, I don't want to go to one extreme on it. That's why I said, like, what if Bernie was 90% himself and 10% like a little bit more conniving and strategic? I don't know. So that's kind of the way that I think about it. Yeah. No, I mean, this is not, I don't know. I mean, I wonder, I do wonder what the reception of this episode is going to be to my listeners. Um, Unfortunately, I hate to break it to you, Dan, because you're being so uh, generous with your time right now in the midst of this crisis. You got a lot of headlines to write, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, uh, podcast listening is down uh, in this pandemic. People aren't driving. They aren't working. They aren't going to the grocery store. They aren't running errands. So they're not listening to podcasts. But damn it, I hope this gets a wide listenership. And 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 I'm I'm going to be curious to see how people are going to take this. And before you get angry or before you get before you're convinced, you know, uh, either way, read the piece. It's long. You have a lot of insider discussions, a lot of off the record conversations. Uh, you're going to take those to your grave, I know, but damn it, I would love to know who, who these people were and what they were saying. Maybe I'll have access to them once the campaign uh, winds down and we'll we'll be able to talk about it on air with some of them, I'm, I'm sure, uh, some of them owe me interviews once the campaign is over. But uh, but we do need to have – we do need to start breaking this down and we do need to start having these conversations because we're holding up the Bernie Sanders moment. And I'm guilty of this as anybody. We're holding up the Bernie Sanders moment, this campaign, the man himself, his style, everything as the gold standard. And – and maybe it's not, maybe it's not, you know, <laughs> and and I don't think, you know, uh, the fact that like, even like there's a little voice inside my head who's like railing, railing against what I've just said there. And I know that some other people are saying, what are you saying? Bernie is, you know, he's the, the, you know, he's an incredible figure. He's one of the most important political figures on the left or even progressive scene in, in a hundred years. I mean, I'd put him in top, you know, the top five in terms of being consequential. I'd put him in, in oh, fuck, this is going to be great, Dan. I'm going to love this. I'd put him up there with Lenin. I'd put him up there with Trotsky. <laughs> I'd put him up there with, you know, some of these, uh, with Keynes. I, I mean, I really would in terms of, you know, the the consequences of their actions, right? Not their unassailability necessarily, but the consequences of their their sole actions, the, the man in the arena, right? <laughs> uh, I'd put him up there. No question. Up there with Margaret Thatcher. And uh, and yet, like, none of those people that I just mentioned for sure are are perfect humans, are unassailable in any way. And we need to start having those serious conversations because I want to end the show this way. Maybe we've lost some people by now. They've they've take, they've turned it off in anger or whatever. Um, the fever and the chills came back, whichever the case may be. 
uh, you have done some digging in a similar vein around uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's maneuvering over the past couple of months. And there's a lot of controversy on the left right now about about her endorsements or non-endorsements or activities, whether or not she's been co-opted, whether or not she's turned her back on the left, whether or not she's a sellout, a shill, all the rest of it, which is just ongoing. That's She's been facing this since since day one. And, and it seems that the basis of their judgment comes from this gold standard that is the Bernie Sanders campaign. That is Bernie Sanders the human. And if we start to look at Bernie Sanders as, 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 a, as, a, as a tragic figure, as, as a flaw, as an incredibly um, you know, inspirational and important and consequential figure, but also flawed in his own way, in much the way that the, the British left is having to interrogate the Corbyn moment. If we do that, then that's going to change the way we assess other left figures and ways of moving forward. Um, I know that we need way more time to break this down, but you've written, you did some digging around AOC and a potential pivot that you're seeing. Uh, what do you what do you see happening there? So I should I should clarify, I did not. That was mainly a Politico article, but I did do some digging around. I, I can make observations based on my 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 reading of what's going on. I, I think that. First of all, a couple things, and I want to call back to my own reporting on this, you know, just to, to put a bow on her involvement in the Bernie campaign. I broke the news that Faz Shakir, the campaign manager, had sought her more assiduously than she was willing to provide in terms of presence on the campaign trail. She went close to three weeks after New Hampshire before uh, appearing uh, a sort of, sorry, before New Hampshire, before joining, uh, holding a rally for Bernie on New Hampshire Eve, and then subsequently went almost a month before appearing again for him in Michigan. I think you can debate what impact that had. And, and she certainly claims that she was just trying to live her life and, and run her reelection campaign. She had held 15 rallies for Bernie, you know, probably more than anybody or nearly more than anybody. And so, but there were some theories that that reluctance had something to do with her her misgivings about the direction of the campaign, including her distaste for for Joe Rogan. Some of my sources thought that was the case. Uh, but the flip side of that is is that there were other people in Bernie world who thought that she was overused or or improperly used uh, in the sense that trotting her and 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 Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar out into let's say Iowa, where the goal was to win over more middle-aged voters, uh, may may not have been the wisest tactical choice. Obviously, there was an important moment before the Iowa caucus where Rashida Tlaib led a, a booing of Hillary Clinton with like a, a you know a, a packed house of hundreds of probably mostly young people, and of course Pramila Jayapal, more pragmatic-minded, was sort of like uh, you know you know hitting her arm like please stop, and and she didn't. You know, and again, so so there was that debate internally, uh, and 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 it's sort of like damned if she does, right? In terms of was she on the trail too little for him, or was she on the trail too? Well, I mean, were, were those figures used? I mean, we should think about this in context of your piece, right? Were those? And, and I, I got to be honest, when you wrote that piece, or when you wrote the sort of reflection piece, the political piece, I fucking hated it, <laughs> but I let it sit and I let it simmer, and I leaned into the discomfort. Rather than just like you know adopting it wholesale, a lot of people, at least not 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 in, uh, in, in um, objecting to your your take on this, but the Politico's right. take on this, taking 
the word of like say Nira Tandon, Tandon as gospel on this, right? Whereas like right, using right. the the words and the messaging and the massaging of of like the progressive left's enemies as like right. you know the, the the end all be all authority on what's actually going on. Um, that that was problematic in that piece to use a word that I don't usually like to use, but it's just undoubtedly problematic to use the words of your sure, the framing sure. of your enemy as like the authoritative take on any subject. You know, it's not well rounded enough. It's the opposite of a hug box, right? And that's what Politico's good right. for in that in that sense. But 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 what and if you take it in context with your piece, what you could what you could say then is that you know perhaps AOC was used as a band aid to try to cover up these other blunders, these other inadequacies that that you know you and other sympathetic Sanders supporters that you interviewed uh, pointed to along the way. Would that be accurate? Huh. Well, I I'm veering into somewhat speculative territory here but one of my sources you know not from the campaign said to me that they looking from the outside outside but but sort of in close consultation felt sometimes as though the campaign had a underwear gnomes strategy for winning the presidency get aoc endorsement step one get aoc endorsement step two question mark Step three, win the White House. <laughs> um, and yeah, certainly yeah. It, it played a really, I mean, she singled probably more than any one person uh, gave him the momentum he needed to win in those first three states. Yeah, brought him back to life. Because like almost, you know, it's a nice totally, metaphor after totally. his, uh, his heart attack. And, 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 really, and really helped him consolidate. I mean, there were other factors. I talk about him going on air and unlocking funding for field. I mean, he was, he, he was bottling up key funding. Again, he's very sensitive to the working people that give him those donations, but sometimes it leads to bad judgment calls. And he had not allowed his campaign to scale up properly in terms of field staff or go on air. And and and, and at least in terms of field, Warren and Buttigieg were running circles around him in Iowa. So that all happened at the same time. But her endorsement was huge in terms of bringing back those, helping bring back those young liberals who might be getting a little bit Warren curious. You know, I mean, that, that I, I really think that there hasn't been necessarily objective polling that shows that for me, but I know that the campaign believes that to be true and fundamentally changing the media narrative around Bernie at his lowest possible moment and turning that low moment into an inflection point. So yeah, I do think that it's po- it's certainly possible that Shakir in particular, you know, had put a little bit too much stock in her and, and, and placed t- too many chips in that basket. In terms of the political story, which I agree, uh, I, which I think had a, a decent premise that may have needed a little bit of extra reporting. This is how I talk about my colleagues because I know how fucking hard it can yeah, be. Yeah. Maybe, um, couldn't, maybe they couldn't get the inside scoop. You know, Maybe they tried. I, you know, who knows? Well, that's right? right. Right. They relied on kind of this like semi-critical Felix Biederman tweet to right. show like left dissatisfaction <laughs> right. when they really probably could have – anyway, it, but but – I have observed over time just a, a widely varied relationship that she has to being a gadfly in Congress. She wants to be somebody who gets things done for her constituents. She wants to be somebody who gets votes on amendments, who gets like who passes amendments, right? So for example, she tried she tried to she recommended two amendments to the border funding bill. You know, there was all this, remember we had that whole migrant, you know, 
you know, issues at the border, a surge in uh, border crossings and what was going on in terms of providing resources both to just kind of process asylum seekers and and probably also tying it to more militant enforcement. And she had two amendments there to uh, tie, or no, rather, I think it was, no, I'm sorry, it was the National Defense Authorization Act, which is just sort of the annual defense appropriations bill. And she had two amendments she was trying to get passed, blocking blocking uh, the U.S. military from sending tr- the Pentagon from running facilities for detention uh, of, of immigrants and uh, blocking the sending of uh, U.S. troops to the southern border. I, I, I might have to double check that. The, the committee chairman, uh, the Armed Services Committee, did not recommend that his members endorse those provisions. Now, I spoke to the guy, Adam Smith from Washington State. He said it was substantive. But there was a general sense that she couldn't get anything done and that part of it was that Pelosi hated her. And, and, and then there was, of course, the blow up with just Pelosi constantly ripping her in the press and then the pushback and then the meeting to defuse that. And, you know, what I had been hearing on Capitol Hill was that she was in an isolated place where she was, you know, getting sort of had this national power that was really hard to translate inside Congress. And, and frankly, even the, the things that we think of as positive, she herself has told me personally, has been incredibly difficult for her to go from being a bartender to this person who, who can't go to the grocery store without being mobbed, right? And, and, and that's not true of any member of the house, really, except maybe like, I don't know, Pelosi and like Park Slope in San Francisco, right? I don't even know if Pelosi went to like a working class neighborhood in New York City, whether people would recognize her, right? You know, but members of the House generally, I mean, it's nothing like the White House. It's nothing like the Senate to say nothing of the White House, right? These guys are a dime a dozen. There's 435 of them. You know, you couldn't pick most of them out of a lineup. So those things were all different currents flowing. And I think that she has a, an ambivalent sort of relationship to it. She ended up parting ways with her former chief of staff, Shoykat Chakrabarty, who was a tech guy who ran her first run. And yet she also still endorsed Bernie. And when I spoke to her after that and her endorsement of a couple primary challengers in the House, including Jessica Cisneros in Texas, she sounded like she was in a fuck them all. They'll hate me no matter what I do kind of mood. Yeah. But. And, and, and whom among, things, whomst amongst us on the left, if you are, if you have done anything on the left in an institutional capacity, I don't care if you're like leadership in a labor union or a political organization or you're fine or you're a podcast host, <laughs> whomst amongst us uh, ha- hasn't felt that from time to time where you're like, well, you know, you, you, no matter what you do, you're going to get, you're going to get shit for whatever decision you make. And, and you find yourself really kind of up against the wall in that way. And, you know, and she's been, she's been thick in, in the thick of the shit since, since day one, since before she was sworn in, there were a number of, you know, dust ups with those on the far left about different statements that she'd made or different about Palestine, for example, or her, like her, the way that I interpret this, and this might be unpopular with people who are listening, but here it is, right? Again, damned if you do, damned if you don't, um, her unwillingness to fall on the same swords that the left has like ritualistically impaled themselves upon for the past several decades, right? She's just not going to, to take the bait 
and, and go down in flames in the way that people on the left want her to. And yeah, I mean, look, I, I do want to point out that she probably has other things that she embraces that have their own political liabilities. She's quite woke. Right, right, right. right. She, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to paint a picture of like a super, hardcore she's pragmatist. Su- or, she's super. She's super online, yeah. right, and that drives a lot of her thinking. But like, you know, offering condolences to John McCain, right? You know what I mean? Like, Leave it alone. Th- these were things. That was another early controversy. Uh, praising, like, enjoying Elizabeth Warren's like SNL TikTok video. Those are the things that make her such an effective communicator. Is that she's a pop culture figure? She speaks to people in alluring for reasons that are not strictly ideological and that can be a way to smuggle ideology in. And so I think everything you're saying is well taken. I just want to add one last thing because we're going to have to probably wrap up, but her, so, so I talked about sort of the sense that she had sort of is giving the world the middle finger. And then in more recent months, you know, she endorsed Jessica Cisneros, but she never hit the trail for her, by the way, neither did Bernie. Um, which is again, a challenger against one of the most conservative Democrats in the house who really came within striking distance. And mind you, Nancy Pelosi and Steady Hoyer went out for that conservative democratic incumbent, Henry Cuellar. So again, the moderates organized and disciplined the left, not standing up for their people. Fine. Um, she parted ways with Corbin Trent, really one of these last remaining bomb throwing stalwarts from her justice Democrats initial run. Uh, you know, a guy from Eastern Tennessee who was running a food truck until he was inspired by Bernie Sanders, right? Uh, and and she has sort of shown herself now to 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 try to be a little bit more of a loyal soldier for Pelosi. She went on Fox News to which had been something that she previously did not do to say, um, you know, Congress needs to come together and compromise on the coronavirus. She objected to the choice that she faced in terms of voting for the corporate bailout bill, but she did not object to the the fundamental process, which is that they were being asked to pass on unanimous consent, a bill that had only been negotiated on the, on the Republican Senate side. That was left to the libertarian Thomas Massey, Republican from Kentucky, who objected and forced everybody to come back. And, and, and so I think that she's not yet figured out how to, how to, you know, exactly what her role is going to be in Congress. And I don't necessarily fault her for that. I think that she has to make those those choices and, and no one's ever going to disagree, always agree with each individual choice. And I think the broader question is whether progressives will begin trying to amass a block in Congress capable of thwarting, of, of making, of forcing Pelosi's hand, of saying this bill needs to go through us. My understanding, my, and this is something we've talked about a lot, you had David Dayan on to talk about it. It needs to come through, you know, someone like Ocasio-Cortez playing a prominent role, but also through the Progressive Caucus, whether they even have the 15 or 18 or 20 votes that could bring things to a halt if they wanted to is, is another question. And whether they're, you know, they're, they're capable of building that is also something that people need to look at. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just I look at the moment that we're in right now. Right. And, and people who who really emphasize like social movements, who emphasize the political revolution, who emphasize you know the militancy of labor trade unions and and community you know activism and all that stuff, the grassroots, the real kind of bottom up uh, socialism from below, 
Um, and I, I absolutely am a proponent of that. I've always, I've always has been, have been. I entered the socialist movement in that uh, in that way. We don't have this top down social democratic left in the United States to even you know enter into if you wanted to. For the most part, uh, those people are just PMC progressives. Uh, no, no uh, traditional social democratic party here in the U.S. So that, that I have that in my it's in my core in my in in my blood it's in my bones. And yet during a time like we're, the times that we find ourselves in today. You see how institutional power matters so much because there's no question that like, you know, uh, like wildcat strikes and other militant trade union activity can definitely save lives and, and change the, you know, the, the currents that, that we're in right now. Uh, the people who, um, who most immediately have their fingers on the triggers are the ones who are, who are going to have the biggest impacts right now. And, uh, you know, that's, it means that institutional power is, is, is more important now than it, than it ever has been. And the fact that we have like system builders, you know, institutional power movement builders like AOC uh, in the halls of power, like I mean, we, that's that's incredibly important. And and I don't care how woke she is, and I don't care what she said about Palestine in in some public event where she was baited by Zionists or what have you. You know, like we need to do that, and we need to be more patient and more open minded about the people. Who 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 had who who help extend our capacities into the institutional sector, um, and so you know I'm not saying I'm willing to give her a pass, and I'm never going to criticize her, and you know I'm going to give her the the gold plated treatment like we've been criticizing with Bernie and like we've been criticizing with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and like we must criticize with everybody. But I would just encourage all of my listeners out there to just be a little bit more um, measured, a little bit more patient, a little bit less willing to you know performatively throw certain people under the bus for, 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 for their crimes, their missteps, their what have you. Um, it's a really, it's a really twisted road that we're walking right now. And, uh, your piece shines a, a lot of light on the, the inner workings of this thing. And I just wanted to, to commend you on that as a friend, as a comrade, solid work, Dan Marins, any words for the troops, uh, before we depart here today? As the great Bill Withers who passed away just said, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think that we all need to just, if there's one sort of underlying theme and thesis to this show, Adam, it's examine your priors and, and just always be intellectually vigilant. And, and I think that that may be the, the best lesson we can, we can hope to take away from this moment as we try to rebuild again from the ashes. Yeah, no question. I said, like, the sun has definitely not set on on the the progressive and left socialist movement in ways like the party's just getting started but there's no question that like you know we're we're going through this moment where it's an inflection point there's a the, the chapter has closed you know chapter whatever chapter number we're on right now who the hell knows the unnum- unnumbered unlimited chapters towards socialism or barbarism uh this chapter is coming to a close and a new one is going to begin and it's going to be really important how we assess the previous moment in, in terms of, you know, addressing how we go forward. And, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that we've got journalists, reporters who are, who are willing to ask the tough questions, but like remain principled and, and not fall prey to, to the nonsense. I try to model that as a podcast host. And I hope that my listeners will try to model that as well as activists and participants in the, in the social, political, and economic struggle in your own, uh, in their own communities. So uh, again, everybody, read the damn piece. Don't just take it. For, don't just take our word for it. Read the piece. There's a lot of really important kind of like insider uh, discussion here. I will definitely link to it in the show notes. And uh, Marins, you stay well, my friend. It's a scary, scary time we're living through. Thanks again. All right, take care, Adam. <laughs> <laughs>